Hi, this is KS Garner, and you're listening to the Solo Nerdbro Podcast. And today I want to talk about the history of Nintendo. So first things first, let's give credit where credit is due. My main source of information for this podcast was, was Jeff Ryan's book, Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered the World, published in 2011. It's pretty biased, and I don't do him or Nintendo any uh, favors with my paraphrasing. I leave a lot of information out specifically about Sonic the Hedgehog and Pokemon because I want to do separate episodes for the both of them. And I leave out a lot of the technical aspects. I have no idea what a lot of those words means, nor do I really care. Um, I'm all about the context of people's actions and ideas and the story they want to tell. I leave the deep stuff for the hardcore gamers who are uh, willing to do the research, willing to do their own research, I should say. So let's just go straight into it. Um, the top people that I'm going to be mentioning throughout this episode are uh, Nintendo's former president, Hiroshio Yamachi, his son-in-law, and uh, former executive producer, Minero, it's a Mineru, Mineru Arakawa, executive game designer, Tijiru. Miyamoto, inventor, Gung by Yokoi, Gunji Gondo, who was the uh, Nintendo Nintendo's um, original game composer. Like he did a lot of the music in um, the early Mario games, and I believe he's no, actually he's I believe he's like, doing. All of it. I mean, it's pretty much the same. It should be all the same. Anyway, and then um, Satoru Iwata. He was uh, one of the designers for Kirby, Adventures of Lolo, and Pokemon. And then now he is, from as far as I'm, as far as I know, he's the current president of Nintendo. So let's go right into it. The name Nintendo originated from. Yamachi, his um, great-grandfather, uh, who opened up a uh, card shop in 1894, manufacturing colorful flower cards called Hanafuda, and named the shop Nintendo Gopei. Gopai? Gopei? I learned these words. I did a Google Translate for all these Japanese words, and I'm still butchering them, so I apologize. But uh, Nintendo means leave luck to heaven or do what we can, which suggests the game of chance in card games. So pretty much all of this, from what I was reading, a lot of this stuff happened by accident. And it kind of lives up to the name of Nintendo and the meaning behind it of this is a game of chance. The whole gaming industry, I think just being a creator and a producer and inventor or innovator if you like to call it is all a game of chance and this is pretty much what they did everything they did was up to chance especially since it I mean it, arcade games and video games weren't all brand new when nintendo entered the that industry but they definitely created their own genre so um yam yamachi uh his grandfather sold to gamblers who use a new deck for every hand they played. The company went on a roller coaster of gains and losses after World War II, rebounded, and then crashed again after the 1964 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. After inheriting the shop from his grandfather, Hiroshi craved more slices of the entertainment pie, not only in Japan, but on a global scale after visiting America and meeting with Walt Disney executives about licensing its characters on cards. Nintendo was a six-person startup in Kyoto, Japan, when they transitioned from manufacturing cards to distributing toys. However, other Japanese firms were selling arcade games, such as Namco's Pac-Man, Konami uh, Frogger, Bomb... Bomberm, Bombermans, <laughs> Hudson Soft, and Space Invaders, um, Taito. 
But these games and its companies were only successful in Japan and nowhere else. Nintendo's most skilled inventor, Gumbai Yokoi, started his lifelong career with Nintendo by repairing its game card machinery. He made a telescoping fake hand as a gag and Yamachi decided to market it as a toy. It was called the Ultra Hand at first and it sold over um, 1.2 million copies in 1970, but Yokoi's real talent lay in portable games. After watching a man play the electronic calculator on the train one day, Yokoi had the idea to make small games that run off watch batteries. Yokoi taught himself about segment display, which led to uh, which led the pieces, I should say, of LCD uh, eight eight inch is what they call it, or uh, it looks like LCD eight. I don't I don't know how um, Jeff is saying this, but uh, when it lit up separately, it represented all ten digits. By designing a man with many hands and only lighting up two at a time, uh, the segment displayed. Uh, an animated cartoon character for a game. LCD was dirt cheap at the time because of the boom in electronic pocket calculators at the time. Games people were playing were meant to uh, f- fit into your shirt pocket and only weighed about 5 pounds. Yokoi's intervention, invention in easily accessible and affordable materials resulted in the Game & Watch. Its first game in 1980 called Ball was a knockoff of uh, the ping pong juggling game. Off the back of Ball's success, Yokoi and a team of designers began the process of cranking out numerous games every few months, flooding the already crowded arcade market. In 1980, Nintendo turned the hand uh, at a shooting game called Raider Scope. This too was a knockoff of Space Invaders. Scope's twist was the enemies flew down but then retreated back to safety at the top of the screen. The more blasts a player let fly by, the slower rapid fire blaster would become. Finally, some wireframe building to give the illusion the player was standing on top of the buildings looking up at the alien horde. Redscope was Nintendo's biggest selling game that year. The biggest maker of arcade games at the time was actually Atari. In 1972, the company put the mega hit Pong out, followed by Asteroids, Tank, and Lunar, Tank, Lunar, and Lander. In 1980, Battlezone, the wireframe game of Tank Combat and Missile Command, a Cold War nightmare where players had to see how long they could keep civilization alive while shooting down nukes raining from the USSR. Nintendo attempting to enter the arcade market was no easy feat outside of Japan. American distributors weren't impressed by their success in Japan and some vendors found the beeps from Radoscore annoying. Yamauchi hired his son-in-law, Arakawa, um, had his family move to New York City to try and sell Radioscope in arcades. New York City was the toy capital of the world, but arcade games was a more difficult selling point. First, they were shipped from Japan to Seattle, where the warehouse was located, and then shipped domestically by two guys named Ron and Ahau. Out of the 3,000 Yamauchi... Yama, oh, sorry. I'm butchering these people's names. Yamachi, Yamauchi, Yamachi, we'll go with Yamachi. Uh, he shipped them to, uh, out of the 3,000 Yamachi shipped to him, Arakawa only managed to sell 1,000. Eventually, Arakawa had an epiphany about what to do and how to sell these cabinets Yamachi insisted he sell. He had to stop thinking like he was still living in a Japanese society and Japanese culture. He had to start thinking like an American. Federal was in the depth of his dignity and family's honor like he was brainwired to think his whole life in Japan. More like a rebirth. Ritterscope wasn't doing well. 
Yamachi agreed with Arakawa on a replacement game based on the cartoon Popeye. Since the movie starring Robin Williams was in the works, even if the game didn't do well, the game would sell itself when paired with the movie. Nintendo had the rights to Popeye when they obtained them when they were a food manufacturer producing Popeye ramen. However, the rights to create an arcade game would take years, which they didn't have. Even though the usage of the well-known character was out of the door, the newly employed staff artist Mayamoto was committed to the original storyline, defeat the villain and rescue the girl. The main characters were the barrel-chested hero, the enormous opponent, and the tall, willowy heroine who needed rescuing. Mayamoto later said, I just made a vague set of characteristics for him as a middle-aged man with a strong sense of justice who was not handsome. Instead of Popeye, they named the character Jumpman. Olive would be the lady, and Bluto would be Donkey Kong. Jumpman, like most other figures in early arcade games, was limited to three colors. Peach for the flesh tones, blue for the boots, shirt, boot for the boots, shirt, and Jumpman's single eye. His hair was black. It was just negative space for the designers. Like, they just left it blank as negative space since the background was black. They just left it there. Uh, with a tinge of blue, like artists did in comics with Superman. But the blue looked weird, so they added a red hat on top of Jumpman, therefore fulfilling the three-color quota. His mustache was added simply to tell the difference between the nose and the mouth, and then a peach button added between his pants and shirt to suggest overalls. Jumpman's punch and small stature, as athletic as he was, was designed to be proportional to the gamer's eyes and allow them to connect with the figure better. And for those who are overalls, mostly, or still does to this time, I should say, people who worked in construction jobs. So Jumpman became a carpenter. That would explain the construction type set for gameplay where Donkey Kong throws barrels down the bare eye beams, forcing Jumpman to basically jump over them. If the barrels were the problems, then the ladders were the answers. However, just because a ladder was there didn't mean that was the best option to use. Mayamoto gave the player options with the ladders, either the quick and faster ladder with additional barrels hurling towards them, or the one further and safer away, but it took longer to get there, losing time. Level 2 would have 5 stories of conveyor belts, level 3 elevators and springs, and then level 4, Jumpman smashing rivets to finally bring down Donkey Kong. Designers were baffled by the variations, uh, the very, the variety, I should say, variety of themes past level 1, when 90% of the gamers would never make it that far. But Miyamoto was an artist first and foremost. He was there to tell a story, not just create another ripoff arcade game. After the first level, Miyamoto wanted another cutscene where Jumpman and the lady briefly reunited before Donkey Kong snatches her back up and begins to climb even higher I-beams. From start to finish, Donkey Kong was 20,000 lines of coding, which was unheard of at the time. And since Miyamoto created the theme music himself digitally, he was an accomplished pianist at the time as well, which is, that doesn't actually go away. He is an accomplished pianist. Uh, it took up a fraction of the space when extra sound equipment had to be added for the audio to work. Now, the name Donkey Kong came by accident. The original name was actually Monkey Kong, but because of some communication issues either over the phone or through fax, the name was trademarked as Donkey Kong. Arakawa tried and failed multiple times to have the name changed. Fortunately, he had the green light to rename Jumpman and the Lady. The warehouse where Railscope's cabinets were gathering dust was ran by Don James, who was getting heat from the landlord about unpaid rent. For his leniency, Nintendo named the Lady after Don's wife, Polly, and they named her Pauline, which was really close to Polly. As for Jumpman, he was named after the landlord himself, Mario Segal, who personally invited himself to the warehouse one day to remind the manager about the rent during a meeting about Jumpman's name. 
He said his piece and left. The warehouse employees joke, had joked that Jumpman should be named Mario because he and Atlanta looked so much alike. The suggestion stuck and the rest is pretty much history. Donkey Kong was difficult to sell to vendors and sales crews because it wasn't something they could identify with. It wasn't a shooting game which sold the most or sports game or a driving game. What made it marketable was that the more times the game was completed, the tougher the, the tougher the game had become. Ron and Al shipped Donkey Kong cabinets to two bars in Seattle that already had Radoscope games installed. They visited every day to observe the game, uh, to observe the makeshift testing site for the game and its progression as the days went by. Donkey Kong immediately started to deliver more than $30 a day, way more than Radoscope, which then grew to $2,000 a week. Demand seemed to increase exponentially with every arcade game venue needing a cabinet, then two, then three. You are 60 times more likely to find a Donkey Kong cabinet than the theater playing Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was uh, which was actually 1981's most popular movie on opening weekend. When Nintendo ready Donkey Kong to move up to a video game platform, Caligo Vision won out over its competitor Atari for the exclusive rights to the game. By this point, Donkey Kong made more money in 1982 than any other movie with the exception to E.T. Their global property bought in $180 million within the first year in the United States alone. Why did Donkey Kong succeed where others didn't? According to pop culture psychology, while many other shooting games offered a way to destroy, Pac-Man offered a way to escape and Donkey Kong offered a way to rescue. Now in comes Universal Studios with a none-too-good proposition. They traveled to Coleco headquarters under the pretense of investment. However, when they arrived, they dropped the pretense and threatened to sue Coleco if they continued to work with Nintendo for copyright infringement. Coleco folded without informing Nintendo and paid the royalty fees demanded by Universal. When it was Nintendo's turn to be sued, they stood firm and took their chances in court. They, hi- they hired Howard Lincoln, who was once the lawyer for the shipping operators in Seattle, Ron and Al. Lincoln claimed that Nintendo filed trademark paperwork for Donkey Kong years prior and that the two Kongs weren't even the same animal. In court, their trial lawyer, John Kirby, confronted Universal with their own defense years before with RKO about this very issue. Since King Kong was as much of a public figure as Huck Finn, no one truly owned his image. This meant neither did Universal. Even if they did, Donkey Kong wasn't a copy of King Kong. Even if it was, it was considered parody, which is legal. So Judge Judge Sweet granted a dismissal of the suit by Universal. They've lost every suit filed afterwards and had to pay Nintendo's lawyer fees. Howard Lincoln later became Senior VP and General Counsel of Nintendo. John Kirby was awarded a boat he named Donkey Kong, and exclusive rights to use the name for sailboats. Also, in 1992, he he earned his own well-known and beloved character who gained their own series of games, a pink fluff ball named Kirby. Around this time, Nintendo introduced the Donkey Kong sequel, Donkey Kong Jr. Miyamoto wanted to rotate the love triangle. Donkey Kong was too big to be a playable character, so he was inserted into the kidnapped Pauline role while Mario would be the villain. The master who locks up Kong and never lets him free. Then Donkey Kong Jr., a smaller, agile ape, would come and attempt to free him before Mario caught up and either move Kong Sr. further away or kill Jr. Donkey Kong Jr. obtained lots more ways to get around in the game like swinging on vines and chains as well as jumping, but it also had its challenges against the player. There were living bear traps, yellow and purple birds that hopped and glided through the air in deadly assaults on Junior. The quote-unquote snap jaws moved in two different directions and colored differently so the player could tell the difference between the two. 
Miyamoto was accused of not knowing his characters at the time when the characters were even like before they were even in existence. Like they were only around for a certain amount of time, for like a short period of time, and he's already changing up. So he was accused of really not knowing what he was doing. But for him, this was just a natural progression in the storyline with Mario and Donkey Kong. In 1983, Miyamoto introduced another human protagonist in Donkey Kong 3, Stanley the Exterminator. Donkey Kong swung at the top of the screen and then punched a hive full of bugs. Once Kong escaped the bug invasion, Stanley's job was to exterminate them and then eventually spray Kong himself. Another game Miyamoto worked on included a hanging, changing Mario from a carpenter to a plumber. It was a friend's suggestion that from the overalls to Mario's pudgy appearance, he looked more like a plumber than a carpenter. Mario had to lower himself down into the sewers of New York City and get rid of nasty critters by jumping on them. Headbutting one from below buckles it and flips them over. If Mario collides with them while they're upside down, he knocks them off screen. Once they're all off screen, the level is clear. The sidestepper crab started off red and if not kicked off screen once flipped over would turn a speedy blue. Good attacks and quick finishes rewarded Mario with points and coins that clattered all over the screen. The game's challenge wasn't just defeating the creatures, winning the game before time ran out or collecting all the coins, but all three. The levels were easier to clear, but more objectives were added. The game would be called Mario Brothers. And to adhere to the title, an identical Mario, taller and slimmer, was added. His skin tone and hair was slightly different, the red shirt now black and blue overalls now green. This person was Luigi, or I should say this character was Luigi. The most crucial aspect of Mario Brothers was that the two brothers couldn't kill each other. Cooperation in games wasn't a road many traveled down. Multiplayer games were common, but teams and duos weren't. The only honest way to defeat Luigi was to outscore him. It was simple cooperation competition rather than throat slitter. With all of these games from Nintendo along with other companies and third-party developers, the market was becoming oversaturated with video video arcade games well outside the arcade. Distributors put them wherever people regularly spent money, but they weren't seeing return investment, especially when they allowed players to pay with credit because they weren't returning to pay the debt off. The home console was the beginning of the video game crash during this year. Buying a console didn't it didn't make sense economically because they only got one game with the console and even a known game didn't guarantee a great experience. A lot of the conversions from cabinet to console didn't translate well and many levels didn't come with every console. Some received less or more compared to the others. Markets stopped selling and stocking newer models. Many companies either went bankrupt or shut down for good. And at the time, what should say, like maybe about the year before, uh, Time Magazine's Person of the Year was a computer in 1982. But by 1984, video games and anything with a mouse or a joystick was dead. The American video game crash didn't affect Japan at all. If anything, Japan benefited from it. The crash gave Nintendo an opportunity to enter a billion-dollar market where the others had just forced themselves out of. President Yamauchi, Yamachi, sorry, did, what did we decide on? Yamachi? President Yamachi had engineers working on a home gaming console for years. Instead of a joystick, Nintendo's quote-unquote family computer, or what it was later known as Famicom, would use one of Yokoi's innovations from the Game & Watch, the direct directional pad or d-pad d as in dog <laughs> the little plus signs along with two square buttons on a controller nintendo ignored mario's villain role and donkey kong jr in order to create multiple games starring the plumber in pretty much any role they so desired he was the face of nintendo so it didn't matter where they put him as long as he was included it didn't matter what game they designed around him 
The Famicom was released on July 13, 1983. Two controllers were hardwired into the white and maroon system with vertical holding slots built into the console that stored them in when they weren't used. Player 1 had the start and select button with the external power cord sticking out from the left. Player 2 had a power cord sticking out from the right with the internal microphone instead. The Famicom launched with Nintendo with Nintendo hits including Donkey Kong Sr. and Jr. as a full-fledged computer. But then they started to break. As complicated as computers were to manufacture, one small mistake in the whole system was ruined. Players' games either would either freeze or crash mid-session. Yamachi ordered a production recall for every single Famicom, even the ones that weren't bad. Then the company had the entire motherboard ripped out and replaced with a new one. By the end of 1983, Famicom moved half a million units. And once the new games fitted for the system were done as well, Famicom became the biggest selling game system in Japan, selling 3 million consoles by 1984. For the new Famicom games, Mario's occupation shifted once more to a new explorer narrative. Miyamoto designed side-scrolling racing games and vertical-scrolling athletic games with five or six levels by adding a chip to increase the cartridge size. His game idea involved a fantasy land accessible by sewer pipes where Mario would go on epic adventures in land, sea, and air. He would grow to great size and shrink down. He would be able to breathe fire and under and breathe underwater. He would be able to battle living fungi, malevolent clouds, and demonic animals. The Mushroom Kingdom could afford an endless number of beasts, inventions, characters, tasks, environments, and challenges. Mario would still be a plumber, but one of the biggest changes was the background. Super, Super Mario Brothers took place on a beautiful bright day with scattered clouds and distant mountains. To keep, to keep up with this theme of happiness while on this adventure with Mario, Miyamoto requested happy music. The official Nintendo composer, Gojoy Gondo, was assigned to the task. The score for level 1 is an infectiously happy synthesizer salsa. I don't even know what that. I don't even know what that is. When Mario goes underground, a bass-heavy score thick with tension kicks in. When he's underwater, the music is soothing and muted. When Mario grabs a power-up star, the beat turns fast and frantic. The music even sped up when Mario ran out of time. In the end, Super Mario Brothers had 32 levels in eight boss battles. Mario gain, could gain a hit point by eating a mushroom and grow much bigger in size. He could gain invisibility from sparkling stars. He could throw bouncing fireballs if he touched a flower. The list goes on and on. It was it was a whole lot that Miyamoto added in here. I mean, with 32 levels and 8 boss battles, he better be able to do a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Finally, the game shipped on Friday, September 13th. When it arrived to Japanese arcades, players plopped quarters into them long after the, they defeated Gengupa, just to find all the Easter eggs. Now, Nintendo had to sell it to uh, the Americans, pretty much. Uh, Yamachi had hit a wall with the Famicom because of the crash in 1983. But once the console proved successful in Japan, he took the system to trade shows with a new American name, the Advanced Video System, before being renamed once more as the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES. Nintendo slowly pushed the sales to retailers who were hesitant to allow consoles back onto their shelves. Eventually, retailers relented and started selling the, con the consoles as bundles with the multiple games. Once Super Mario Bros. was introduced to the market and sold along with the bundle, including controllers, sales skyrocketed internationally. When Miyamoto redid Super Mario Bros. Uh, as a new game, Japan was used as a testing ground before American shipment. 
The Japanese consumers thought the game was too difficult, which was a bad sign for the American audience. More than halfway through, Miyamoto couldn't start over again because he and his creators were already starting on other projects. He loved the exploration elements of the game, its obstacles, enemies, and deadly hazards. Plus, the discovery of caves reminded him of his own childhood and added a fantasy element to the character's quest. Um, a new game started to surge... I'm sorry, a new name started to surge in the U.S. from a F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, Zelda, a.k.a. The Legend of Zelda. Mario himself wasn't just a character of canon. He was a pop culture superstar. But Miyamoto decided the gameplay was king. He wanted new ideas, new opponents, and new powers for Mario. So he got a series of new suits. The frog suit made him swim faster. The bizarre Tanuki suit made Mario into unmovable stone and let him fly and have a tail to hit his enemies which I actually remember I actually remember playing that game and he had the, the squirrel kind of outfit on it was and like you it when he would get attacked you couldn't move him but then he spun and would hit somebody with his tail and I didn't think it was weird I thought it was cool but anyway as I was saying <laughs> Miyamoto added more power-ups and extra lives in the earliest stages and held them back as the game progressed that helped new gamers keep playing, making experienced ones feel like they weren't playing a baby game. Super Mario Bros. 3 was a collaborative effort, which meant every contributor would have a section, have a character, and an obstacle they could claim as their own. The game, more than any others before, rewarded the completionists. Simply winning wasn't enough anymore. The new goal was to visit every location the game offered, do every activity, soak in each experience it was about play what was called um what they called the flow so the fun of the flow is is feeling of accomplishment and fulfillment while engaged in an activity nintendo itself learned that it would be richly rewarded for increasing the quote-unquote flow of gamers arakawa added a toll-free phone number in the thick instructional booklet of the original zelda in case anyone was confused. The four people that manned the lines was quickly swamped with callers. He increased the number of employees exponentially up to 500 during the uh, holiday rush and removed the number from the, uh, the booklet, but the calls kept coming. This further cemented Nintendo's reputation as caring for its customers. Nintendo also expanded on its fan club newsletter, secretly working on what would be Nintendo Power Magazine. Everyone in the fan club got a free subscription. Nintendo knew they had a tremendous game on their hands. It provided a deep experience that would show off its versatility and the fact that Universal, yes, that same Universal that sued them over the King Kong infringement not five years before, approached them with a full-length movie for the upcoming game. Uh, it spoke volumes about Nintendo's clout. And the movie was called, what should I say, the, the ad for the movie was called The Wizard and it starred Fred Savage, Christian Slater, and Jenny Lewis. And it was kinda it was clunky but it, it worked. Like it, it won over the target audience. And uh Super Mario Brothers was released in Japan in nineteen eighty eight, but not in the US until nineteen ninety. Super Mario Brothers moved millions on its first day February 12, 1990, two months after The Wizard hit theaters. The game went on to sell 18 million copies, selling, setting a Guinness World Record for the most games sold not bundled with a system. Yokoi had been working on a handheld device with removable cartridges since the decline of the Game & Watch franchise in 1989. This has been attempted before to disastrous, this has been attempted before to disastrous and expensive results. He understood price, playability, hardware, and consumer issues, but insisted he could do it. The new device would be called the Game Boy. It had no backlight since it was expensive to add one and it ate up the battery. Users complained they couldn't play in the dark, but the other pros for the Game Boy outweighed the lack of light. Color also drained the battery, so Yokoi proposed four shades of gray 
with a little bit of like an olive green. Each Game Boy would come with earbud, earbud headphones for a private gaming experience, a battery pack, and a link cable for two-player games, plus an on and off switch that locked the game cartridge in place. Tetris was bundled with the Game Boy, but not Mario. Arakawa personally personally flew to Moscow to obtain the rights Atari claimed they had, but they didn't. No one did. Any copy other than what Nintendo had was bogus. Nintendo walked away with the exclusive rights to the console and handheld rights of Tetris. The Game Boy sold out in Japan upon its its launch in April 1989 and again four months later in America. Mario finally had competition. Sooner or later, this was it was definitely going to happen. Nintendo couldn't be the the ruler, the all the all being the supreme overlord of of uh, video games forever. Uh, one of Nintendo's rivals that never seemed to keep pace with them finally caught up. Sega Genesis released Sonic the Hedgehog, who was the anti Mario. He was created for the Gen X consumers. He has spiky hair. A constant smirk and an attitude to match. Suddenly, jolly old Mario was lame and Sonic defined cool. Now it was Nintendo's turn to keep pace with Sonic when they created their own puzzle game with Dr. Mario, but it just didn't match up. Miyamoto kept doing what he did best, create games that followed the storyline and developed a deep experience the player would enjoy. For his next game, Super Mario World, on the renamed NES, now Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES for short. The sound was beefed up so the player could hear practically everything. The controller was changed from a brick to a dog-shaped bone with four rainbow color action buttons. In addition to the two shoulder buttons, a new item was added. Was added. I'm sorry, a new item, new item was added to the game. A feather that let Mario fly. A spin jump lets Mario crouch down to careen up uh, extra air. Mario's firefly, fire flower only killed bad guys, but then turned them into collectible coins. Miyamoto for years had wanted Mario to ride a freaking dinosaur, but the technology wasn't available. Now it was. The dinosaur went on to be named Yoshi, which was, that was his name with a capital Y. So Yoshi with the capital Y was his name. But the species of dinosaur he was, was also called Yoshi with a lowercase Y, which is it, totally weird. <laughs> While Mario stayed, stayed the same size, Yoshi had to grow bigger to do his signature move, which was gulping down enemies. Game changes included checkpoints, so if Mario died, you returned there instead of starting the level all over again. After playing the level all the way through, Mario could quit the level and move on just by hitting the start button, and warp doors were available as a fast-forward to players' favorite part to replay. Super Mario World was sold 3.5 million copies in Japan, while the SNES did 17 million units. So here's a part of the story where I think it's probably the worst part of the Nintendo's <laughs> Nintendo's history, uh, which would be the movie. So yeah, we kind of have to talk about it. Uh, Dustin Hoffman made it known he wanted to play Mario in a movie. Nintendo passed, seriously considering Danny DeVito instead. However, DeVito passed since he was looking to do more mature scripts and less comedies. The studio signed Tom Hanks, of all people, Tom Hanks. I thought maybe he would do Luigi, but as Mario, I, I don't get it. But uh, um, they signed him on, the studio actually signed him on to the project for $5 million. Needless to say, it didn't hurt Hanks since he wanted to do uh, Philadelphia and Forrest Gump when, um, when Nintendo passed on him because they didn't want to pay him the $5 million. So the late... Bob Hoskins, who was the uh, British actor who played the detective in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, he was chosen to play Mario at a much cheaper price. John Leguizamo as Luigi, Samantha Mathis as P 
Princess Daisy from the Game Boy version. It was first it was Pauline and then they changed the name to Princess Daisy for Super Mario Land. And Dennis Hopper as King Goopa who rounded out the cast. Uh, the movie. Uh, yeah, if anyone's seen it or at least even heard of it. I mean, the movie was a disaster from start to finish. There were multiple script rewrites. And whether or not the movie was supposed to be for adults or children, the actors were constantly drunk throughout the filming just to make it through the day. Leguizamo was so intoxicated during a scene where he had to drive and then slam on the brakes. But he slammed on the brakes so hard, he caused the sliding door to slam onto Hoskins' fingers. So he had to wear a cast for most of the, for most of the shots for the rest of the movie. Even the production crew wore crew t-shirts as a form of protest against the directors. The movie flopped at the box office and disappeared from people's minds as quick as it came. Moving on to a more prosperous venture was uh, Super Mario Kart. Kart was named after F-Zero, a futuristic combat game designed around an insect alien invasion. Weapons that would shoot from the carts would be turtle shells or banana peels. A power star made whoever grabbed it temporarily temporarily invulnerable. A mushroom would parlay a burst of speed. A feather would hop you in the air. Best of all was the lightning. It shrunk everyone save for you. The roster included Mario, Luigi, Toad, and the Princess. Yoshi, Bowser, Donkey Kong Jr., and Tupa Trooper? I'm sorry. What? I read things. I always transpose my letters for whatever reason. I think it might be my dyslexia. And Koopa Troopa, who was later replaced with Mario's evil twin, Wario. Goji Gondo even wrote music that sped up in the final lap. Even the Sega Genesis competing in for first place with Nintendo, the company continued to keep a slow and steady pace in the in the market. They had staying power and they knew it. To further prove their ingenuity, Arakawa wanted in on-the-fly Mario conversing with people as they walked by him at a 1994 trade show. And it was voiced by um, actor Charles Martinet. I wanted Martinet. And he he was the one that coined the iconic face we all know today. His chipper falsetto started pouring forth in a genial ramble about how nice it was to be there and how much he liked everyone. Even though Mario rarely says more than whoa or woo, the same person has been recording it for each game for about two decades now. Martinette is also Luigi... Wario, Wallage, Wa, what is it? What is it? Is Luigi, Wario, and Waluigi? I guess is how you pronounce it. And uh, Baby Mario and a handful of other small characters. There was a time when Nintendo's image, along with Japan as a country, endured negative publicity. First, there were complaints about the lack of racial diversity amongst employees. Then the feat that video games led to unsavory or violent behavior even though Nintendo never depicted blood or gore in their games, which hit them with a loss of in profit competing with the likes of Mortal Kombat and Tekken. Then, Senator Gordon of Washington State begged Nintendo to buy the Seattle Mariners before they were sold to Florida. Nintendo agreed, but not without prejudice from the other owners. Conspiracy theories flew around claiming Japan was attempting to buy the world, starting with the American pastime. It wasn't until George W. Bush, the owner of the Texas Rangers, intervened and convinced the others to allow the trade, persuading them that Japan was an ally and should be treated as such. Between 1992 and 1993, Nintendo started cranking out Mario after Mario games. There was Mario Paint, Yoshi's Cookie, Mario, Super Mario Land 2, 6 Golden Coins for a Game Boy. Mario was Missing for an educational PC game. It was kind of like a Carmen Sandiego type thing. And uh, Yoshi Safari. And then Wario, 
the um, villain for Super Mario Land 2 got his own game, Wario Land Super Mario Land 3. In Japanese, War, I want to say, uh, Wario? That meant bad. And he was, he was given, Wario, he was given, um, a, uh, like a, like a big old bulbous nose, a mustache in the shape of Charlie Brown's, uh, sweater, like that zigzag pattern on his sweater, and a big build of muscle and fat while wearing purple and yellow. Wario is a sneering, greedy bully whose main goal was to collect enough coins to buy a castle and then rub it, that castle in Mario's face, like, just just to rub it in his face that he got a castle and Mario didn't. Another big game released then was Link's SNES debut, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past, which has been voted by Entertainment Weekly as the best video game of all time. The biggest change was a dark world, a nighttime level which repopulated the world with new villains and doubled the size of the game. Further replayability came from trying to boost Link's stats by finding, for instance, every last heart container piece. Miyamoto found a new flow balance, give players the choice of scouring around or move forward. He also oversaw uh, Zelda's Game Boy debut, Link's Awakening. Although Nintendo had been pumping out all these games, some great, some not, it all boiled down to cyberspace in the end. They literally didn't have the space for their data to publish certain games or for them to have a specific aesthetic for appropriate execution. They had needed to transition to CDs for some time, but hesitated for the fears of hacking and piracy. In 1988, Sony developed a CD-ROM for Sega that offered more game, but lacked quality. So fast forward about another 10 years, or maybe less than 10 years, I'd say, to the mid-90s, Sony finally figured out how to combine both uses of space and quality. Nintendo granted Sony the licensing rights to the special format it used, which was called the Super Disc, which was a huge mistake since Nintendo made a large amount of their fortune off of licensing fees, but when Sony bought them, they could only use they could only be used on the new uh, CD format and not the NES or SNES Nintendo had. Initially, initially, Sony names their new console Nintendo PlayStation, but Nintendo sued for obvious reasons. But and uh, soon after, Sony simply names it PlayStation. We all know what I'm talking about. Uh, when they released it. It featured 3D polygon graphics, massive environments, full motion videos, and way better graphics. A lot of third-party developers were moving towards PlayStation because of their usage of CDs. Cartridges were on their way out because they were literally yellowing with age. They were more expensive to produce and didn't hold as much memory for gameplay, you know, like the memory cards that they started using then, nor did... Uh, nor did data for better development, including 3D imagery, developers were attempting at the time. And Nintendo was in, they were in some deep trouble. They held on to the blocky cartridges for as long as they could, but it couldn't hold its weight against the CD. They released Star Fox, Donkey Kong Country, Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. There was uh, tons of Mario merchandise from apparel to food packaging. A variety of toys to office supplies, stationery, and miscellaneous homeware. Nintendo even inserted a quote-unquote Mario chip into the cartridges to give a little bit more, a little extra oomph for graphics and, and playability. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to compete with Sony's CD-ROM format. Nintendo was dealt another blow when their longtime inventor, Gunpai Yokoi, not only retired from the company and soon started his own, he later got into a car accident and when he got out of the car to check the damage, he was sideswiped by another car and died two hours later from his injuries. He was only 56 years old. Sadness.
Sega Genesis attempted to compete with Sony and Nintendo in the CD-ROM console race with their own home gaming console, the Game Gear, and handheld Nomad. They announced the console's launch for May 11, 1995 in a select amount of stores and then another shipment six months later. However, Sega didn't think to charge you through. Once the Nomad and Game Gear sold out, Nintendo stepped in and announced their own rival console, the Ultra 64, which later became Nintendo 64. Side note, Ultra was trademarked by Konami for a shell company for the Nintendo, for, I'm sorry, for Nintendo, for the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle game forcing the name change. So, gamers... When they got the Nintendo 64, the new controller that they had, gamers could hold the controller uh, three different ways. They could use the analog stick, the D-pad, or the four uh, yellow C buttons in the diamond on the right to let players swerve a floating camera around. Uh, there was an expansion port for a memory card, and um, the slot could be used for a quote-unquote rumble pack to force feedback into the controller, which soon became mandatory for every game controller. The entire setup was designed around the launch of Super Mario 64. Super Mario 64's plot hinged on cake, believe it or not. Bowser's, uh, Bowser, I should say, takes over Princess Peach's castle full of paintings that are portals to other worlds. Mario had initially stopped by for cake from the princess. Stopped by for cake from the prince, like she invited him over, I should say. <laughs> but he now has to defeat Bowser's minions in each painting, get the star pieces, and defeat Bowser. After several delays, the Nintendo 64 arrived in Japan on June 23rd, 1996, and three months later hit American stores. The Nintendo 64 was the best selling game. Ever well, the Nintendo 64 was the best ever ever selling game console ever at the time, with 11.8 million copies. Even with the success of the Nintendo 64, there was still the issue with cartridges. All the the major Japanese developers, such as Konami, Namco, Capcom, and then American Midway Acclaim and EA, all moved to PlayStation. Gaming consoles weren't just for games anymore, but as communication tools. With enough great games, Nintendo was willing to ride out the lack of third-party developers. Most of the other games just gave the illusion of choice. I, um, Satoru I, Iwata programmed games in the early days of the NES in part-time with HAL Laboratories, developing games for The Adventures of Lolo and Kirby. Hal was contacted to develop a version of the success um, of the success Game Boy game Pocket Monsters, or as AKA as we know now as Pokemon for Nintendo 64. It was a it was uh, it was role playing with minimal graphics, battles that ended with one fighter uh, one fighter fainting instead of dying, and, a, and an obsessive compulsive goal of finding 150 critters wandering around in the woods. After an anime show premiered in Japan, it was released in America weeks later, right before the Game Boy Color version of Pokemon. The game was a huge success, allowing the Game Boy to dominate years after. Pokemon was like a game of chess. It forced players to focus on strategy since every critter had a type, a weakness, or a strength, and how you quote-unquote stacked your deck of six Pokemon in an what order you played them. In 2001 came the GameCube. Nintendo had finally took the hint and gotten rid of uh, gotten rid of the uh, the cartridges in exchange for discs in the new millennium. A smaller disc allowed for an overall smaller machine. The missing circumference meant that a few games have to be uh, dual disc affairs and many more would have to compress their audio and video. The wing grip controller was designed to discreetly house buttons such as a big green A button that fit above the thumb, uh, a red B button, two 
eyebrow-like great buttons around the A and three shoulder buttons. It also had two control sticks, one gray, one yellow, and a gray D-pad. The console was a compact purple cube. The color suggests royalty. Smash Brothers Super Smash Brothers Melee. This this freaking alliteration is crazy here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was an upgraded fighting game crammed in a dizzying array of music, characters, and weapons, along with Luigi's Mansion. A ghost-busting Luigi who stunned ghosts with a flashlight and sucked them up with a vacuum in search for a ghost nap Mario were bundled with the GameCube. Unfortunately, three days before the release of Nintendo's newest console, Microsoft's Xbox comes into play with the game Halo and Xbox Live, which was the first console that allowed players to compete with one another online. Sega ended up dropping out of the race and entering the third-party development for other companies. The market assumed Nintendo would follow in their footsteps. Nintendo wasn't a genre anymore. They were a niche. They tried to revitalize the Game Boy with the Game Boy Advance, but it came and went. The Advance is one of those things you buy and use for a period of time until the newer model comes out, or even just re-gift to someone who has never played one before. It's called the Candyland Syndrome. Every few years, a new generation will be getting that particular gift like it was not vintage but they come up with newer versions every couple of years like the same thing but a newer version because the newer generation coming up doesn't know about the previous version but they call it the Candyland syndrome in the early 2000s president yamachi was looking to retire from nintendo and searching for his replacement he didn't believe Arakawa, his son-in-law, and the man who started the whole Mario franchise was fit for the job amongst other things between his strained relatives. Luckily for Arakawa, um, he didn't want the position to begin with. Even better, Arakawa retired right before Yamachi as a slap in the face for how the man treated him for decades. Iwata was promoted to president instead with one less request, but more like a demand actually from Yamachi, was his his demand really was to stay in hardware. That's what made Nintendo different from their com- their competitors. The hardware was necessary for its premier software to be properly viewed. Once Nintendo did away with the Game Boy Advance, Iwata thought of the DS. The concept came from the Game Boy Color's Kirby Tilt and Tumble. It was a game for kids, so it didn't receive a lot of attention, but the accelerometers, or motion detectors, I should say, used for the game would be um, explored more um, for the next handheld. The DS stood for dual screen, and each unit had two 3-inch LCD screens. Even better than two screens was the touchscreen. The base panel had a... uh, resistive panel which turns the whole image into a digital button. All DS's were shipped with a stylus pen so actually no touching on the screen was necessary. Uh, The DS was similar to the late uh, Yokoi's 1980's Game & Watch system, a suggestion made by Yamachi shortly before he retired. The only reason why the DS succeeded with the Game Boy Advance and Game Boy Color didn't was the fact that this handheld aimed at casual players, specifically adults who wanted to play short games and could afford accessories, especially um, the Bluetooth headsets, since there was no earphone jack and the Chrome skin, like the the update on the Chrome skin, just like they got a new skin, you know, that's what they got, and they could be able to afford such things like that. Uh, the DS and PSP which was the portable PlayStation from Sony, uh, they battled for dominance with different versions over the years. Nintendo won out because of its longer battery life. Also, Sony was having issues with piracy, which was a huge thing with why Nintendo held out for so long was because of piracy issues. Uh, Since the PSP could be connected with the PS3 and gamers would download PS3 games not meant for the PSP, onto their device. 
third-party developers cease all production on games until that specific issue was fixed. But I guess not, or it just wasn't worth fixing because who in the world is still playing a PSP? Lastly, we have the Wii and the 3DS. The concept of the Wii started as a console that copied the DS through motion control via a camera. The letter W is an emoticon that means smile or smiling in Japan, and the word Wii implies family gaming. Miyamoto had a guiding principle when designing the console. Make moms happy. Moms were the ones who went to the store and bought the games and consoles for their children. The name was simple and happy. The price was lowered and games were designed to be family friendly so the younger siblings and relatives could stay and watch the older kids play. Another incentive was an add-in game. Wii Sports contained five games. Tennis, bowling, boxing, golf, and baseball which promoted healthy and active lives, lifestyles moms love. The Wii Mote was a controller that was like it was slim like a TV remote control and could sense movement. The avatars called Mii's, M-I-I, possibly S, were inspired by the Japanese art of Kokeshi, I want to say. They were um, they're armless wooden dolls that we uh, customized and would mimic each player on the screen as they moved. After the Wii was released on April 26, 2006, it sold out every month for three years straight. Then the DS, it was pretty much the same as a DS, but the player can view images in 3D. Uh, the bottom panel remained 2D, but touch sensitive. Plus, it was all in one. It was all in one handheld for uh, 3D movies an mp3 player it had internet access and allowed users to chat in 3d so like i said this um this book by jeff was um published in 2011 so it's not gonna have the switch on there i personally have a switch i am like i said this is pretty biased um i left out a lot of the technical aspects of um nintendo's history i am biased towards um Nintendo, like, I, I love Nintendo. Like, I have a Switch. I just, I had for a year, and I actually just hooked it up to my TV, and I may never actually use it as a handheld ever again. Maybe when I'm, like, at the airport, and there's a layover, or on a flight or something. But it's 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 wonderful. I love it. And also, I mean, I also like Sony. Those are the two ones that I really, really am big one is Nintendo and Sony because I have a I have a PlayStation. I made fun of the PSP, but I had a PSP. <laughs> okay? And you know, I don't know what is going on with Xbox. Like I've never been an Xbox fan ever. We have one. I don't think we've used it since. It's just like like Jeff said, uh Sony and Nintendo specifically have staying power. I think it has a lot to do with um, going back to what you know, that's why they've released so many Mario games, um, even when they were, um, releasing new games, even with Kirby, or, um, Link, or with the Pokemon games, or, uh, Donkey Kong, or Wario, and Luigi, and what have you, people were familiar with it, so they're always gonna come back to it, even when they try new things, whether they work or not, they're always going to come back to what they know. I know Nintendo. I know PlayStation. I don't really know anything about the other, the other consoles or the other games. You know, who else? Who else has staying power? EA, Madden, 2K, uh, FIFA. I don't know what they call the baseball, but the baseball. Like that stuff is not going anywhere. That's why it comes out every year. That's why people take off work to play these games as soon as they come out because it has staying power pokemon has staying power how many pokemon shows are on tv right now it's ridiculous how many versions they release like every couple of years of pokemon i've kind of like lost track but it has staying power that new that pokemon uh detective pikachu movie just came out earlier this year of 2019 huge 
huge. Like, I'm still trying to get a new DVD, but I, I really loved it. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much all about staying power, and that's what Nintendo has um, always fought to have. Like, they may not have the newest, hottest thing out right now, but they have sustainability, which a lot of these other uh, companies and developers just didn't really understand at the time. They, uh, Everyone involved had a vision. They may not have seen eye to eye. They might have had a lot of disputes in the beginning of certain projects or just in the beginning of starting Nintendo and the transitioning over to America. But in the end, it all worked out and it was just a game of chance, really. That's all it really is. It's just a game of chance. So... That's the end of my spiel. This is the end of the history of Nintendo. If you have any questions, comments, you want to provide some constructive criticism, um, more than welcome to that. My email is solonerdbird at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. This is McKay S. Garner. You have a good one.